It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. All righty, what is going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. And thank you for subscribing to the podcast. If you haven't already, that's very hurtful. But it's okay. I forgive you if you subscribe right now. That's all it takes. Just click subscribe right there on the smartphone or go to thepetecalendarshow.com. Click subscribe there and then you're subscribed. And then you don't have to feel guilty about, you know, listening without being a sub. You could also be a patron too, like Ruth, Barbara, Jonathan, Theo, Janet, Lori, Gregory, James, Matt, Lisa, Jolene, and Becky, they all became patrons of the program, and that means uh, not only do they get the satisfaction of knowing that they're uh, helping support the show, but uh, they also get access to the live streams that we do, the weekly live stream events. They're so much fun, so uh, head on over to thepetecalendarshow.com, and uh, we'll see you there on a Thursday night. All right, so joining me now is David Harsani. He is a senior writer at the National Review, and he is the author of multiple books, uh, including First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun, which is kind of, we're going to draw on that uh, expertise today. Welcome back to the show, David. How are you? I'm well. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I will give you a chance because I understand you got the you got another book coming out. So I'm, I will, I'll ask you a little bit about that. I don't know what you can say, but I just saw that you've got a book on its way. So, well, hell, I'll just ask you now. What, what's the new book about? <laughs> so uh, my book's coming out in the fall. It's called Euro Trash, nice. Why America Must Reject the Failed <laughs> Ideas of a Dying Continent. And it's somewhat self-explanatory, but it is actually a case for 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 the classical liberalism of that sort of is the foundation of American life and not just uh, in, in a sense of, of sense of, you know, risk taking and in the sense of um, the way we live our lives and why we shouldn't be turning to Europe as so many of our elites want to, to, to find solutions to the problems we have. And I just go through, um, you know, I go through one issue after the next and explain why. Yeah. Um, which I'm kind of curious, like, does anybody in, like on the right, on the political right, look to Europe at all for anything anymore? I know like, there's a there's kind of a sentiment on the left that they still look at like the Scandinavian countries. Um, but does anybody on the right even do that? Um, well, yeah, the left, you know, loves to talk about Scandinavia and they get it wrong in many ways, right. by the way. <laughs> They're much more capitalistic than we think, in many ways more capitalistic than us in, in the sense of their successes. The right lately has been looking at some Eastern European and Central European countries for ways to, you know, uh, you know, get people to have more children and to get people back into church and to mm. sort of, I guess, uh, look towards uh how can I say more traditional values and, and trying to save those. But I would say that that's not a big part of my book because I don't think it's a big part of the American, yeah. you know, it's not a big part of rhetoric, but there are, there are some people who do that. Okay. Uh, so again, that's coming out in the fall and it's called Euro trash, which I love the title. Okay. So first freedom, a ride through America's enduring history with the gun. I think we actually uh, discussed this book cause it's been a couple of years. I think we had you on when, when it came out mm-hmm. and uh, you did like years, like two or three years of research for this book. And, um, and you said that it uh, is meant to be an accessible history of the gun. So give us sort of the uh, just for folks who aren't aware of the book, what, what was the backdrop, why you wrote it and what was it about? Well, I grew up in, in New York where not a lot of people had guns, well, at least not law abiding people. And <laughs> um, 
so I didn't grow up in gun culture or anything like that. But then I moved to different places in the United States and I met people who were uh, steeped in that culture. And uh, I was just interested. I thought, you know, and I'm a big Second Amendment advocate and I always was, but more in sort of in a philosophical way than any kind of, you know, tangible, real way of, you know, as far as owning guns and stuff. But that changed. And um, I thought that my perspective might be a good one or that I would have a different sort of perspective on on guns and the history of them. So the book, it's not like it's a defense of the Second Amendment, but that's not the real point. The point is to talk about how um, guns are immersed in our culture and how they uh, helped, you know, how they have something to do with all our of our history, good and bad. And um, and I go through, you know, I just go through uh, from from gunslingers to, you know, uh, the revolution and, you know, into modern times and, and, and what guns meant to Americans and, and its history. So all of that sort of made you a perfect candidate to do a review of this book <laughs> called The Second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, written by Carol Anderson. And so you did, uh, I, I, just full disclosure, I did not read her book, okay? I did not read her book. I read your piece about your review of her book, The 1619 Project Comes for the Second Amendment. Um, so I guess first off, let's talk a little bit about Carol Anderson. Um, what do you know about her? Uh, I guess, did you, had you ever heard of her before you read the book? Um, I think I have, you know, but I'm not, you know, I, I, the name sounds familiar to me. And then when I went back and I saw the things she had written, she was familiar to me, but I'm certainly wasn't, you know, that familiar with her. I mean, I'm just, you know, yeah. I, I concentrate on, on this book and what she wrote. I can't really speak to the other things she said. Right. So cause I, I, when I saw her name pop up in regards to this topic, um, I remembered her because I, we had just gone through a court hearing. She was a key witness for the plaintiffs in a in our voter ID lawsuit. They're trying to block North Carolina's voter ID from ever taking effect. We passed it like a decade ago. And uh, and she was the expert witness. And she said that a black Democrat had white rage for co-sponsoring the voter ID bill. So that's the kind of person for folks who aren't aware of who Carol Anderson is. This is the kind of person she is. That sounds like the person who wrote the book. <laughs> okay, right. It comes through. Okay. So, uh, and the other thing that kind of struck me was the title of this book, In a Fatally Unequal America. Like, I'm intrigued by this term, fatally unequal. Like, it kind of implies that we're doomed for death. <laughs> because of, mm. Right? Because, I guess because of the original sin of slavery. Is that part of the book, too? Yes. Oh my I mean, <laughs> it's kind of funny, or it's not funny, but it is ironic, I guess is the right word, that really her argument inadvertently, and it's in the, it's in the subtitle of the book, the, the, you know, the unequal America, is that in essence, she is making a defense of the Second Amendment because she is saying that, that black Americans were not afforded those rights and thus were left defenseless. Which me tells me that if if Black Americans had had a Second Amendment right, if they had weapons to defend their families and themselves, things would have turned out very differently. So, <laughs> the, her whole right. book with small edits, you could have made it into a book defending the Second Amendment, making the argument that the the, the real sin of America was not equally, and I do believe this is the real sin of America, was not equally letting everyone share in the same rights in you know, rights handed down, you know, from God to the people, not through the state. 
which is an argument that many civil rights leaders made. Right, precisely. And in fact, this issue has now kind of um, reemerged in North Carolina. They still do a pistol purchase permit system where you got to go to the sheriff to get a permit. You got to pay $5 if you want to buy a handgun. And then the sheriff determines whether or not you are a, a person of good moral character. And what was that from? That was from the Jim Crow era. <laughs> that was where sheriffs could stop black people from getting handguns to defend themselves. Right? Yeah. I mean, from the, you know, throughout our history, up to maybe the 1930s, most gun control efforts were meant to, you know, to subjugate people or to deny them their rights. In the South, it was often black people, but even in other places, there were other people, Catholics sometimes or, uh, you know, Indians or whomever. So, there, you know, the, the history of gun control is a history of, 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 the, of, the, of the, you know, subjugation or the stripping of rights of, of, of black people. Most laws, gun control laws, can be traced back in that way mm-hmm. um, until the 30s. So, it, it just, so our argument didn't really even make sense to me in that in that regard. So you say that, uh, or you quote from her, that the Second Amendment was not some hallowed ground, but rather a bribe paid again with black bodies. Um, can you explain that? What a, a bribe? Now, so her argument is essentially is that um, the you know the the debate over the Constitution, the debate over the Bill of Rights, um, necessitated Madison essentially to bribe Southern states to come aboard, South Carolina, right? Um, even North Carolina, I think she speaks about it. That was by adding the Second Amendment as one of the amendments because Southerners, especially in South Carolina, were nervous about slave revolts. Now, it is, of course, true that people who owned slaves were nervous about slave revolts, but she offers not a single a contemporaneous quote or <laughs> pamphlet or speech or anything. She just makes the jump from one to the other. I, in my book, and many others have done this as well, can offer, you know, well, entire books of quotes of um, the founders and framers and uh, revolutionaries of that time, many of them who had no slaves, some of them who didn't, you know, were anti-slavery, making arguments for the Second Amendment in the context of an individual right, in the context of a national right, there is not a single quote she offers and I that I've ever read that shows that the Second Amendment being written had anything to do with slavery. In fact, the four states that initially had their own Second Amendments, and I believe North Carolina might have been one of them, um, three of them were had abolished slavery by, the, by, by 1791. So it, it makes no what she says. There's just simply no evidence. It seems to me that she's, you know, She's participating in this trend of trying to revise history to make everything be, be, be debated and be seen through the prism of race and nothing else. But uh, this actually is just so shoddy that I think even worse than the 1619 Project. Well, I was going to say, it, it sounds like she's in line to get a Pulitzer. That's what... Sorry, that's all right. Uh, maybe a tenured position at UNC. Um, well, no, she's already at Emory. I don't know if it's tenured or not. Uh, but all right, more with David in a minute. Here is something that I do know. If you are looking for a mattress, then look no further than Mattress Man. Mattressmanstores.com. I got this email from a longtime listener, Ken. He took my advice. He went to Mattress Man. In fact, his wife was telling him, look, we need a new mattress. And he said, fine. 
He finally broke down. He's like, we're going to get a new mattress. But one stipulation is, he says, got to go to Mattress Man uh, because he supports the show. Chuck at Mattress Man supports the show. And so uh, he said, I thought it was going to take all day long. And we get to the store at like 11 a.m. We're done before noon. And Chuck was there to assist us. And he said he left the house looking to spend $3,000 on a mattress. And he he said we selected a Biltmore mattress. And uh, they walked out of there with, like, the mattress for about half price. He said they saved so much money, they actually got another mattress for their daughter at the same time. They were so blown away uh, by the service and the selection and the quality. Uh, he says, I am so sorry this is such a long email, but I needed to uh, I needed to write a lot of words to express how happy I am about your sponsor, and I can guarantee that had it not been for you, we would never have thought of them. So thank you. So thank you, Ken. I appreciate it, as well as everybody else who has gone there. I know of... Uh, uh, many people uh, just recently we had uh, Paul who went there and Manuel and Michael uh, with his wife Dustiana like they they all go to Mattress Man you should too get great deals great service free local five-star delivery service nationwide shipping 120-day comfort guarantee tons of flexible financing options uh, like zero down zero interest for up to 72 months for qualified applicants experience the difference at Mattress Man buy local and sleep better so david harsani from national review reviews this book entitled uh the second race and guns in a fatally unequal america by carol anderson um you you also pointed out that she ignores the tradition of militias in english common law why is that important well to her because she sees everything through just you know this narrow prism is that she believes um, that militias existed to be to put down, sla- you know, to keep slavery alive, and um, which I'm not saying that militias were never used to to put down slave revolts or whatever, because they had, that had happened before any Second Amendment was written. But as anyone who's read any American history knows, the militias, uh, the tradition of the militias goes far, far back, long before any Constitution or Revolution goes back into. British law. In fact, as I've noted in my book and lay out, you know, the idea of self-defense, the idea of militias has a longer history than the idea of religious freedom even, or, you know, any of the other rights that we enjoy. So it's only existed basically to, to subjugate again, to, to keep slavery alive and to make sure that there were no slave revolts. It's just not, you know, it's just not historically accurate. So um, you say that uh, the leader of the founding generation, nearly every one of them, the leaders in the uh, the founding fathers, they all stressed the importance of self-defense in entirely different contexts. You mentioned John Adams, you mentioned, uh, and you call him a slavery skeptic, um, Ben Franklin, uh, who became an abolitionist, anti-slavery guy, Samuel Adams of the beer and such. Like So all of these guys, they were all talking about uh, individual liberty. They were talking about the right to self-defense at an individual level, right? Not not like some societal level that I think a lot of people on the left try to make it about now. Um, and that there, as you mentioned, there's no evidence that these people were talking about this in any kind of a context about slavery. Now, is that just because they they didn't recognize their own racism? They did not recognize their own white supremacy and privilege, and so therefore it was this big blind spot for them. So of course they wouldn't talk about it. Well, that's a good question. I, I, you know, 
it's possible, you know, that, but then if you're writing a book of history, you have to provide some evidence for this. Now, I would say that I doubt very highly that Benjamin Franklin presided over the Pennsylvania convention. And then when the second amendment came up in the back of his mind, he's like, well, we'll use this against, you know, because of, you know, whiteness and, and black supremacy. <laughs> I mean, white supremacy. Um, so I, I highly doubt it. And moreover, as I mentioned before, many of the most um, outspoken um, defenders of the idea of both an individual right, but a, a national and state right to defend liberty and yourself and your family, your property, et cetera, were against slavery. And I, to me, that's because those two are, are kind of intertwined. You can't, if you believe in liberty, it's very difficult to make the case for slavery. And we had a lot of hypocrites in our, in our founding, and everyone knows that. Mm -hmm. But Sam Adams was not a hypocrite. And Benjamin Franklin, I think, may have owned slaves when he was young, but he was an abolitionist by the time the Pennsylvania Convention came around. And John Adams was not pro-slavery. And, you know, and I can't, you know, and there were many others who made those cases that sounded very much like the case made by others, like George Washington. But even George Washington, I don't think, thought about, you know, the First Amendment or the Second or or, or any of the amendments uh, to the Constitution, you know, be, you know, as, as related to slavery that but I'm, you know, I'm not I can't say I'm an expert on all those things, but I've never seen a quote or any kind of evidence. Right. And you would think that they would. Well, and you did say there's a pivotal sentence that you highlight in your piece. Um, in short, James Madison, the Virginian, knew that, quote, the malicious prime function in his state and throughout the South was slave control. That's the, the pivotal sentence from the book you identified. And so you went you went and looked up her citations for this, which I think this is just too perfect. She's quoting a person named Bogus. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> which I like I I had to check to see is this a real person? It is. It's a real person so she's basically so, relying on a bogus paper it sounds like. Right, exactly. Someone <laughs> told me that I should have I should have titled this uh historian uh, relies on bogus paper for quote. <laughs> That's right. But um yeah. There you go. <laughs> oh, there you go. So, um so I, I take that sentence only as to to as an example, but this happens numerous times throughout the book where she has in quotation marks, a quote, right? So in short, James Madison, the Virginian knew, quote, that the militia's prime function in the state, I forget exactly what it says, with, throughout the South was slave control, right? right? Close quote. Now that makes it sound like James, like James Madison said that, right? She doesn't even mention, and then I followed that end note, um, and it was of this paper written by Professor Bogus of that, that uh you know lays out the same exact case she makes and also doesn't offer any quote but that's just so dishonest i mean she needed to do that to create the impression that she had found a quote from james madison making this case where none exists so um so i yeah. just think that that's dishonest right and the original paper is he even takes Madison's quotes apparently out of context, as you highlight that uh, and Anderson declares that among his great rights, Madison discussed only trial by jury, freedom of the press and liberty of conscience, and that the right to bear arms didn't even make the list. But it did. Here, here, here's my favorite part of that. So she says that. So I follow the end note. Right. But I double like follow it again from the paper as well. So she says literally uses the words does not make the list. Meanwhile, this this contention is drawn from 
um, Madison's speech defending the Bill of Rights, where he literally has a list, and <laughs> in, in on the list he says, fourthly, <laughs> you know, um, right after uh, you know the right to freedom of religion and assembly, you know, the right of people to keep a mirror up shall not be um, infringed. So not only was it on the list, but it was number four on the list. And uh, and, you know, so that's also misleading this, you know, because there she delves into another or, you know, another popular leftist argument that the Second Amendment was not important, that it was just concocted for, you know, to help, you know, as a bribe to slave owners, Mm -hmm. even as an individual right, that like slave owners in South Carolina needed permission to have. I mean, she must understand that the anti-federalists didn't want to write these things down because they thought by writing it down, people would chip away at those rights in the long run. Maybe they were right about that. I don't even know. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, but the point wasn't that that if they hadn't written the Second Amendment da- d- down, that South Carolina in South Carolina, slave owners wouldn't have had guns. Everyone had guns, right. um, which she admits. So um, it's just it's not it's not logical. It's not rational. And there's no evidence so basically you know that's the whole book well and that's and that explains why she's being celebrated for uh for writing this so it's it's i do kind of wonder like did i take the crazy pills or did the entire society take them at some point and i just wasn't aware either way that the people that are being celebrated for this kind of work and we mentioned you know nicole i I alluded to nicole hannah jones there with the tenure track at uh, unc but uh, like it seems to me, and I think we're probably about the same age. Like I'm 47. I remember when this kind of stuff, these kinds of errors, would cost people their jobs or a run for office or something like that. There were actual ramifications for this stuff, and it doesn't seem like there is anymore. No, no, that's a good point. I think it's a big problem. What happened, and this happens in journalism, and happens, you know, in other ways. There used to be standards, right? And if you broke standards like the new republic had writers you know fabulous you know not fabulous but fabulous like you know making up story writers Mm -hmm. um and they were caught and no matter what their political views were they were fired or you know probably fired because it undermined the reputation of the of the paper etc but i don't know maybe we become so partisan that we don't care as long as people tell us what we want to hear there are no repercussions for getting things wrong anymore i mean cnn can get things wrong for four years and there are no repercussions <laughs> so why should historians or you know why should there be any repercussions and then you then it turns into or you know at the same time we society or at least the left have become obsessed with race so you could say anything you could call anything racist now and then you just make up some history to to prove it by either making it up or by just how can i say you know focusing on one part of the history and blowing it out of proportion to make everything about that one thing mm-hmm. race and uh and you can write books like this because this is what pbs wants to hear and they'll have her on this is what npr wants to hear and they'll have her on etc so yeah. she's probably going to sell a ton of copies of this book and then people will when I say something about the Second Amendment, they'll like throw an interview of her to me in the link and say, here's a, you know, an expert who says and that and then, you know, that's basically how we argue these days. Yeah. More with David in a minute. Uh, first, here's an expert in getting your home sold. It's Rowena Patton and her all star powerhouse team. Uh, the phone number is 828-333-4483. Put them to work for you. They will get your house sold quickly and for more money. This is what they do. She outsells 99% of the realtors in the entire state. She's the only agent I've ever endorsed, and she's the agent Christy and I use to buy our house uh, in Arden. 
and she's the official and only Homes for Heroes real estate agent in Asheville, which is a national program that gives buyers and sellers 25% back from the realtor commissions. Uh, this goes to police officers, firefighters, healthcare professionals, educators, and members of the military. So veterans, active duty, retirees, keep more of your own money, buying or selling. The only Homes for Heroes agent in Asheville, Rowena Patton, 828-333-4483, and the website mountainhomehunt.com. All right, more with David Harsani uh, from National Review. Um, now, this does tie in a bit. I saw, I literally laughed out loud when I saw your tweet where you said that, uh, FYI, any attack on me is an attack on science. And... So I thought, I mean, I, I literally I don't make the rules. That's it just right. is. <laughs> that's right. I literally laughed out loud when I saw that tweet, which you're talking about. And it kind of ties in here to this lack of repercussions um, in our society with 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 Fauci. Now he's saying Anthony Fauci is now saying apparently today he said that if you're attacking him, that's an attack on science. Like one man is not science, dude. Like, <laughs> again, are we on the crazy pills or is everybody else? I'm at a loss. Listen, he has he has admittedly he has admitted that he's lied numerous occasions treated people like children mm-hmm. um so that they would act in a certain way to sort of to sort of push them it would nudge them in a certain direction of action like their children so I, I i don't understand how is that science i mean he's the guy who said don't wear masks he's the guy who says wear two masks like, <laughs> and then he says it's because you know science you know we're learning more about science and that's great but yet he doesn't provide what study told him Where's the study? Why doesn't he explain why his his position is constantly changing? He never does. And listen, I was not a Fauci hater in the beginning, but mm-hmm. I pretty am, you know, I am now because I think he was wrong about most things. I think that he acted in in ways that, um, you know, he was not empowered to act the way he did, and yet, uh, you know, the left turns to him as some sort of, you know, prophet or some sort of messianic, you know, leader when he. I think he failed and uh, I wish he would just go away at this point, but he's still out there. And now because he doesn't, you know, because he may have been involved, you know, who knows what he was involved in or wasn't. But now because people are pointing that out and pointing Mm -hmm. out how wrong he was and pointing out that he didn't want to talk about things and that we have emails where he essentially ignores important facts. If someone brings that up there against science, uh, isn't (laughs) science part of science questioning things? I think it is, (laughs) you know, so. so. Yeah. I mean, I hate this. Listen, I think an appeal to authority is is a, is a weak argument to begin with. And that's basically what the left often does now. But the problem is that I used to actually, you know, respect uh, yeah. the expertise of people who had degrees and worked hard on these. But they're so everything's so politicized that I think that 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 trust has been corroded and for good reason i don't think it's because wackos and slack-jawed yokels are walking around being stupid only (laughs) something that's the problem but that you know the experts are constantly wrong constantly politicizing everything like they did with hydroxychloroquine Mm -hmm. right we learn now that it actually was effective but just (laughs) because donald trump mentioned it it was no good so how can i trust those same people um well, and this and goes, how can anyone? Right. It goes to you mentioned the masks, the original uh, flip flop on the mask. And I understood like so first when they said uh, don't wear the masks and I thought, OK, that, that's their scientific expertise talking fine. And then they said, OK, now you got to wear the mask. And the reason and then it came out like the reason why we told you don't wear the masks at first was because we didn't want to have a run on the supplies. We wanted our frontline workers who were most at risk to get all of the PPE so they can be safe and you can die. That's why we had to do it. And I thought, okay, so it's like the noble lie, right? Well, 
you, you still got to quit. You have to resign. After telling the noble lie, nobody believes you anymore. That was the purpose right. of telling the lie in the first place. You now, traded... I don't remember the specific. Yeah. yeah, I don't remember the specifics of that, but I bo- don't believe that that was even true because I think that. <laughs> no, no, I think he said something more specific than that. And it wasn't just like, you know, he wasn't just saying that, uh, you know, um, we need these for, for you know, for, for work. I, I think he made a bigger argument. I'm not exactly, I don't exactly remember, but he, and right now so much has happened in the last yeah. you know, year and a half, but there were other instances of this where he was c- clearly lied to try to nudge us in, in, into behavior, you know, into certain behaviors. It's not his job. He, he's supposed to be relaying information to us. That's his job and giving advice to the people who govern. This idea that science should govern us, it's its just immoral. I mean, Dr. Mengele was a scientist too, and I'm not comparing Fauci to, to no. a Nazi, so I have no, but what I'm saying is science itself, it needs moral structure, it needs, uh, you know, it needs governing, so there are risks and trade-offs and all kind of things going on, and the idea that just science should govern us is just, it's just authoritarian and ridiculous. Yeah, well, it, yeah, because a lot of things get done when you are dealing with people who have just a very limited sort of view of all things, it's all like based on their area of expertise they're not that's a, you know it's, it's funny that you just said this because it's exactly like the racial thing where you are obsessed with this one topic so you think everything is about this one thing that you care about and know about so like dr fauci everything just is about risk aversion and health not about destroying businesses destroying constitutional protections on a religion or whatever you just care about, you know, no, no one having this disease. Right. It's just not how the world works. It's an unhealthy way to look at things. And by the way, I live in a place, you know, a bunch of yahoos are jogged by my house with their masks on in 85 degree weather. <laughs> so don't tell me they're following science, right? <laughs> I mean, there's no science that uh, you, you literally, <laughs> now you got me going, you literally would not be able to get COVID if you wanted to in this, where I live, right? You'd have to like search it out and go to a COVID party or something. Right. And yet, you know, people jog with masks on in 85 degree, not just few, like almost all of them. So it's just the idea that one side is more, you know, uh, that cares more about science than the other is just a it's a myth. Yeah, and well, and the very people that are telling you to believe the science are acting like the vaccines don't work in the first place. Because if they worked, then why would you need the masks anymore? Right? right. Isn't that the whole point? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why? I just don't get why I need to, you know, I'm vaccinated and I yeah. go to the local store and everyone's got a mask on. So what <laughs> did we do this for? You know, so, right. you know, everyone says you do it out of respect. And I and I say, I don't really have to respect you. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's no um, I don't buy that. I need to respect you if there's no real good science to back it up because not really respecting you. I'm just treating you like a child, right? I mean, isn't that what wearing a mask is when two people are vaccinated? It's just so silly. Yeah. I just think people like to wear them and that's fine. They can do what they want, but I hate to be forced. There, and there are people that I've seen make that very comment. They're, they don't know how to behave without wearing the mask now. It's like they, it's like a security blanket. And there's like, there's something psychologically at play there. I don't know what it is, but I like, I can, I can attest that I'm not and I wore my mask around because like I didn't want to offend people if people are terrified of dying I'm like all right fine you know I'll wear the mask I'm not like some mask protester or whatever um so I I wore the mask but then as soon as I got the vaccine and they started dropping the stuff like I'm done I'm not wearing it anymore that's it's that's over and uh, but I I recognized even in my own self my views that I would see somebody not masked up and my immediate sort of knee jerk reaction would be why aren't they wearing a mask and I had right. to catch myself. And if that's me, not exactly a pro masker, like I can't imagine 
what the real diehard pro mask people, what they must think when they encounter you at the grocery store without your mask on. Yeah, I I, I get that. And I, you know, it's weird still to see it. But it was always also weird that uh, people were so connected to those masks. Like I would say Joe Biden talked about masks in the way a normal person would talk about a flag. Right. And (laughs) in a way that he probably wouldn't talk about a flag. So um, it was like it was a it was a patriotic duty. No, it's not. It's just a necessity. Um, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, those people who like burn their masks. I think that's pretty psychotic. But, you know, I'm just I'm just I just put it away. Right. And right. Uh, if someone wants to say something, they can. I'm not. You know, listen, I I write, you know, you know, I write in a way you know, that I'm argumentative. Right. And but that's just my like, you know, professional persona. I don't go out there and try to start arguments with people. But I mean, the mask thing has gone too crazy. You know, it's been so crazy that I I don't care anymore. I just can't walk around. It's 85 degrees out here. It's just crazy. <laughs> right. I'm going to a store and everyone's wearing a mask. It's just insanity. Yeah. Um, well, uh, this is not uh, the the topic that we uh, originally started on, which was the piece at the national at nationalreview.com. The 1619 Project comes for the Second Amendment. That's the title. You can check it out at nationalreview.com. The author is David Harsani. He is a senior writer for National Review, author of multiple books, including First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun, and the forthcoming book called Euro Trash. Uh, and so we look forward to that in the fall. David, thanks so much for your time. As always, I appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you for having me. All right. And here's something else you will thank me for is this recommendation, general equipment rental. If you are looking for some outdoor power equipment and tools, go to general equipment rental, generalrents.com. Check out their inventory online. Uh, they are your official licensed Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. And what does that mean? It means they know everything about these models. They know everything about the brands. They know the changes. They know what's going to be right for you and your property and the projects you want to use them for. So head on over to General Equipment Rental. They're in Weaverville. They're at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. They're family-owned and operated. They have been for three generations. Great people, great service, quality equipment, and uh, great pricing as well. Get 10% off your first rental. If you are a contractor, uh, this is like this is a godsend for you because you can just rent a tool for the individual project. I mean, yes, I get, I get, you're a massive corporation doing massive projects. You probably have your own equipment, right? But if you're a smaller operation, you don't want to be going out and buying some of this equipment that you use once, maybe twice a year right? So go to General Equipment Rentals, support the businesses that support this show, and uh, tell them you heard it here. I appreciate that. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville, generalrents.com, and think outside your toolbox. All righty. So North Carolina Republican lawmakers want to delay the use of new social studies standards. Do you remember these? We talked about this back in February. This is when the State Board of Education adopted the standards after months of uh, debate and delay and retweaking them and all this other stuff. That was back in February. I know it seems like a million years ago or yesterday. Um, So the standards, this is according to the News and Observer story written by T. Kyung Hui, I believe is how he pronounces that, and Will Duran. These are the two reporters that worked on this story. And uh, Hui, by the way, is the education beat reporter for the News and Observer for the McClatchy Papers. And Will Duran covers uh, state government stuff, employee, state employee type of beat coverage, I believe. Anyway, um, 
this is how they frame it, that they want to delay the use of the new social studies standards that conservative critics say are too negative about the nation's history. Okay. Uh, First off, yes, it's true that conservative critics say that, but it is not true that conservatives are the only ones criticizing this stuff. This is, again, I'm not sure whether or not the reporters are ignorant of these things or if they are purposefully pushing an agenda. I, I don't know. I don't know. And I try not to ascribe motive to people in these types of situations. Uh, So I'm going to assume that they don't know, that they are not experts on the material. They spend more of their time, uh, you know, tracking down and, uh, you know, covering different issues and such. And so they just don't have the time to devote to learning about the thing that they're going to teach us about. (laughs) This is the thing that kills me. Like, you owe it to your readers to understand the material you are conveying to them. And it's going to become abundantly clear here in a couple paragraphs when I get to, well, I'm not going to read all the paragraphs, but I'm going to skip ahead. Um, so it's not just conservatives, okay? You know, Everybody, I'm sure, has now seen several videos that came out of that Loudoun County, Virginia school board meeting. Those were not all conservatives up there. Okay, you had people from all walks of life, all political perspectives that are opposed to this. And the pushback is working. And you know how I know it's working? Because the people, for example, like uh, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones tweeted out this very day uh, or yesterday, tweeted out that uh, people just don't even understand what critical race theory is. It's really actually nothing at all. I mean, it's really not that controversial. Right. They're trying to redefine what it is they're trying to deflect away and this is exactly what that guy who worked for it works for the npr station in chapel hill or raleigh whatever this is what the guy tried to do to me too except i recognize the tactic and i just refuse to argue on his terms which is you know he's going to ask me questions and try to run me through one of their struggle sessions and it always starts the same way with what do you think critical race theory is like i'm not playing your game if you want to know my thoughts on it then download my podcasts you can do that at the PeteCallanderShow.com. They're free daily. It comes to right to your smartphone tablet. Anyway, um, you, you, you can hear all of my thoughts on this stuff. I'm not going to run through a struggle session where you're the moderator because you are unqualified, first off, to do it. You have no training in this area. Um, number two, I don't believe that you're doing it from an honest perspective. You're not approaching this honestly. You don't want a discussion. You're running a struggle session. And when you realize that's what this is, that's what they are running people through, then you should push back on it. And again, people besides conservatives recognize this. So the state house voted 74 to 34 Wednesday to pass a rewritten version of a COVID-19 relief bill that includes a one-year delay in implementing the social studies standards. Republicans say the delay is needed because the State Board of Education and the Department of Public Instruction are still working on the documents that teachers will use. Oh, so it's a logistical thing? Well, that's what Representative Jeffrey Elmore said. He's a Wilkes County Republican. Um, and he said uh, that you have a month turnaround uh, because these things aren't done yet. And so you're going to have like, what, a month to turn around and uh, put these into a pacing guide and uh, do uh, uh, some sort of staff development for your history teachers at the high school level. He says it doesn't matter what's in it. It's it's logistically impossible. Now, Several Democrats objected, saying that the last-minute change to the fall school schedules would negatively impact students and teachers. The challenge for Democrats is that the bill 
uh, includes items that they support, like $100 million in extra pay for teachers and $1,000 grants for families to help with learning loss. <laughs> so, oh, oh, wow, I'm sorry. Sorry to hear that, Democrats, that there's a bill with something in it you don't like with a lot of other stuff you do. Yeah, that's... See, luckily for them, they can vote against it and then still um, still see it pass. Republicans will still pass it. And... Um, then maybe you can campaign on like, hey, I support these things. Isn't it great that we're doing this for teachers? Which is exactly what the Democrats were ye- yelling and screaming about Republicans doing at <laughs> the national level. Anyway, um, Elmore, Representative Elmore, said that DPI had actually requested the delay in these standards, but the state superintendent said that she had requested a delay earlier, but not recently. So, look, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I'm just reading this article, and I'm trying to read between the lines and decipher what's going on. Uh, is the General Assembly trying to uh, force the the delay of the implementation of these standards? Let's assume yes. Let's assume yes. Okay. They're going to they're gonna force the DPI not to adopt these standards uh, for one year. They're going to force a delay. Okay. Yeah, I'm all right with that. <laughs> I'm okay with that. This is politics, right? This is how this stuff is supposed to work. And uh, you're going to say, oh, well, we're the board of it and we're the experts and all this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, quote, experts. But you're also political appointees of, of a different party with a different view on some matters that a lot of people don't like and a lot of people are now realizing are inside some of these standards. Okay, so um, critical race theory. This is what really ticks me off. Here is the, the way that uh, the News and Observer reporters... Here's how they define it. Critical race theory, and they have a hyperlink right there to another story at CNN. I'm going to get to that CNN story, too, because it's just as bad. Critical race theory is a, quote, scholarly framework that describes how race, class, gender, and sexuality organize American life, according to the UNC Chapel Hill History Department. (laughs) So... They went to the Chapel Hill History Department to get a definition of critical race theory, which is a legal theory, by the way, comes out of a legal theory, but is also rooted in Marxism. That's not mentioned here. No mention of Gramsci, no mention of neo-Marxism, no mention of cultural revolution, no mention of cultural Marxism, no mention of the long march through the institutions. None of this. There's no, there's no, and there's, even when you go to the CNN article, there's no mention of that stuff either. It goes on to say, this, this is the two-sentence description of critical race theory. This view holds that systemic racism has been and continues to be a part of the nation's history. That is such a whitewash of what it is, of what critical race theory is. It is so much more expansive than that. And this is, uh, this is a euphemism, a euphemistic description of what CRT is. The view holds that systemic racism has been and continues to be a part of the nation's history. It doesn't say it's a part of it. It says it is integral to it, that the whole society is racist inherently, structurally, systemically. This is what the whole philosophy now encompasses. And this is why if you are not uh, devoutly and overtly, quote, anti-racist, which means you are helping to tear down these systems of oppression. If you are not actively engaged in that work, then that means you are racist or racist adjacent. <laughs> right? You're part of the problem that you are now an ally of the racist because you're not helping to dismantle the system. Once again, 
at the core of all of these philosophies, whether you're talking about uh, uh, the uh, critical legal studies, critical race theory, the anti-racism stuff, white fragility, wokeism in general, like all of these things, they all have one common feature. You know what it is? The solution. The solution. The solution is always the tearing down of the American project. Always. It's the dismantling of free market capitalism. It's the dismantling of equality under the law. They want equity. It's not equality, right? This is the purpose. This is what the goal is of all of these different projects. So uh, that's not mentioned in the definition. So either the reporters are unaware, and I'm going to say that maybe they are unaware of it because they went to the CNN article to find out, and they went to the history department at UNC Chapel Hill um, to find out what critical race theory is, and they gave us that anodyne kind of uh, uh, vanilla. Well, I shouldn't say vanilla. I'm just saying like it's a whitewash, that kind of a euphemistic description. And CNN is no better. I'm going to get to that in a minute. First, if you are looking for better, high-quality, real U.S. military surplus, then you go to Old Grouch's military surplus. Exactly. He's got MREs. He's got ammo cans. These are um, actually becoming kind of hard to come by now because, they're like guns and ammo, they're getting harder and harder to get. He's got all sizes, functional and cool. You can put them in the shed, put them in the truck, in your man cave, in the garage. Um also, he's got the Home and Workplace First Responder Kit. Uh, this is a it's a it's a pretty large kit. It's orange. It's got the reflector tape on it, and uh, it's got more than three hundred fifty components inside the kit with room to spare. By the way, which is pet peeve of mine. You get some of these kits, and <laughs> it's like uh, it, they pack it. So I mean, and good for them. I mean, they maximize all the space in their in their kit, but then there's no room to add anything. You can't ever add anything extra. Like, oh, I want some extra supplies of this kind. Can't do it. These kits, you can. You got some extra room in there. They're durable. They're bright orange. Um, so it's instantly recognizable as a first aid kit, which is really important. Like if you're in a workplace setting, um, so this way everybody knows what the kit is. They can run to it in the event of an emergency. Uh, and they have everything in there to uh, help you take care of everything from a minor scrape to a broken bone. And... Um, He's seeing, Tim and Old Grouch, is, he's seeing um, a lot of uh, uh, scout troops using this. And uh, sports teams use it, school groups, business owners are coming in there. So head on over to Old Grouch's Military Surplus, downtown Clyde, on Main Street. Uh, the shop is open Monday through Saturday and 24-7 at oldgrouch.com. So here is the CNN article <laughs> that says what critical race theory is and isn't. And this was from 2020, October of last year, by Faith Karimi. It's a concept that's been around for decades and that seeks to understand and address inequality and racism in the U.S. The term has also become politicized and been attacked by its, by its critics as a Marxist ideology that's a threat to the American way of life. Well, gee, Ms. Karimi... Why do you think it has been attacked as a Marxist ideology? Could it be that it is, in fact, a Marxist ideology? Might that have anything to do with the nature of the attack? I would submit it does. It's got everything to do with it, actually. Uh, critical race theory, she says, recognizes that systemic racism is a part of American society. There it is again, that it's a part of American. See, again, that's a whitewash. Critical race theory says it is endemic. It is all over the place. It's everywhere in everything. You can't get rid of it. It's our original sin. 
and it's a social construct, by the way. It challenges the beliefs uh, that allow it to flourish. Critical race theory is a practice. It's an approach to grappling with a history of white supremacy that rejects the belief that what's in the past is in the past and that the laws and systems that grow from that past are detached from it, said Kimberly Crenshaw, founding critical race theorist and a law professor who teaches at UCLA and Columbia University. Okay, so can you have this debate discussion that uh, there are uh, laws and systems that grew out of the past that are inherently structurally racist? Yes, I think you can have that argument. Absolutely. That's part of America's history. Sure. Critical race theorists believe, according to CNN, that racism is an everyday experience for most people of color and that a large part of society has no interest in doing away with it because it benefits white elites. Therein lies the issue, right? You're now ascribing benefits to a certain group of people based solely on the color of their skin. And they say many also believe that American institutions are racist and that people are privileged or oppressed because of their race. White people are privileged. Everyone else is oppressed. Well, okay, except Asians in certain circumstances. Okay. While the theory was started as a way to examine how laws and systems promote inequality, it has since expanded. Ding, ding, ding. Yes, it has. It has expanded. So the notion that it is only strictly limited to the examination of legal systems and laws is not true. Not, and not anymore. It may have been in the 60s and 70s. It may have been in 1989 at the conference or whatever it was when all these guys got together. And it doesn't matter. Point is... The, it may have started focusing only on legal systems and laws. It has now grown way beyond that. Critical race theory attends not only to law's tra- uh, transformative role, which is often celebrated, but also to its role in establishing the very rights and privileges that legal reform was set to dismantle, Crenshaw uh, told CNN. Like American history itself, a proper understanding of the ground upon which we stand requires a balanced assessment, not a simplistic commitment to jingoistic accounts of our nation's past and current dynamics. I agree. History is complex. People are complex. This is the old uh, Simpsons episode joke where uh, the Quickie Mart owner, Apu, right? He's an Indian character and he's uh, becoming a U.S. citizen and he goes in to take the test and they're running him through all the questions. And the examiner says, uh, what was the cause of the Civil War? And he starts to explain like all of the he says there are many socioeconomic factors at play. He starts going through this elaborate, complex answer. And the examiner says, whoa, 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 just say slavery. And he says, oh, slavery. He's like, all right, correct. (laughs) Right. Like this is the overly simplistic idea that people come away uh, from their historical education in K-12 schools. Like, yeah, it's not very good. Now, do people uh, do people know slavery was bad? Yes. Do people know that it existed in America for the first, you know, two centuries of our founding? Yes, absolutely. People know that They, they come out of school not knowing a lot of stuff. And all of the complexities of the Civil War and everything. Um, but yeah, they they don't know that stuff. They don't know a lot of stuff coming out of government K-12 education. Um, Crenshaw is one of the founding members, uh, founding scholars, and hosted a workshop on the critical race theory movement in 1989. But the idea behind it goes back much further. Oh, here we go. CNN getting close here. Goes back much further. Where does it go back to? To the civil rights work of activists 
like W.E.B., Dubois, Fannie Lou, Hamer, and Paulie Murray. And that's it. That's it. No mention of Gramsci, the Italian communist who uh, created uh, essentially what is referred to now as neo-Marxism, the, uh, because he, he realized that Marx's mistake was uh, that, and he was a Marxist, but he said, uh, you, you got societies that are not going to proceed to revolution via a class struggle. It's not enough, especially in a society uh, like America, where people can move from one class to another and then back again, right? People can move up the ladder and down and whatever. So uh, it, it's not a compelling argument to people um, to, to uh, get them to revolt against the bourgeoisie, right? Also, he talked about how the workers would adopt uh, the the social mores, the norms and ideas of the middle class and the elites. And so then they would think that they too share these things. And so they're basically brainwashed. And so they won't revolt either. So he said, you got to go through the cultural institutions, schools, the arts, media or newspapers, right? You got to go through those institutions. And this is what he called the long march. Well, he didn't call that, but it was from him. Anyway, so yeah, the long march through the institutions, cultural revolution, because politics is downstream of the culture. And so that's how you get to Marxism without having to make the class struggle arguments. You don't have to pit classes against each other when you can pit races against each other. How awesome is that? <laughs> This is, but you don't get any of this. You don't get any of that background here. No explanation of any of this. Um, some of the theory's earliest origins can be traced back to the 1970s, when lawyers, activists, and legal scholars realized the advances of the civil rights era of the 60s had stalled. Again, this is critical legal study (CLS), which came out of the critical theory uh, school of thought, and that's that's Marxist. That's where that came from. You keep picking apart the society, criticizing everything until it falls, until nobody has any faith or confidence in any of the underpinnings of the, of, of the society. That's what we're seeing right now. And that's why you're getting pushback, because a lot of people still love America. I know I do. All right, that's a wrap for the episode. I appreciate you listening. Thanks so much. Uh, remember, subscribe, thepetecalendarshow.com. I'll talk with you later, and don't break anything while I'm gone. 